Hey, go ahead and open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. We're, uh, we're back in Zechariah. We're, we're jumping around a little bit, as, you'll, as will be evident here in just a second, uh, why we're going to chapter 9 instead of uh, chapter 4. Before we reread the passage, uh, I do want to call your attention to some special guests with us that are visiting today. Um, Peter and, and Katie Santana, uh, there's a um, display out in the foyer about their call to serve with Mission Aviation Fellowship in Indonesia. Um, would you guys, can I just call you out and ask you to stand so everybody can uh, know who you are? Yay, welcome. We're glad you're here. Peter and Katie worship and are members at Greenmont Church down in Draft. Uh, Pastor Seth is a good friend of mine and uh, so we're just pleased to be able to introduce them to you, and uh, you, maybe you can meet them, hear their story, grab a prayer card, and if, uh, if God lays them on your heart, you can be part of their support team. Um, and just so you, you know, uh, another connection uh, for Tabernacle with them is uh, Joe and Don Santana are Peter's parents and uh, Katie's in-laws, and, um, and so they are part of our body here, and so we've got a little, little family connection there as well. All right, so let's, uh, let's stand in honor of God's Word. I want to read verses 9 through 13 in Zechariah uh, chapter 9. Some of these words will be familiar to you. This is God's Word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, and I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. We are your people and you are our God. And we pray that you would transform us by these promises and by your presence, that we would welcome you and receive you into all the aspects and corners of our lives, that you would take your rightful place as our king and the world's king, and that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> yeah, so of course, some of those words are familiar to us. Um, among the, uh, the passion accounts in the Gospels, Zechariah is the most quoted Old Testament source. Uh, in addition to, uh, to just the frequency of usage in the passion narratives, you also run across him in other places uh, in the New Testament. So uh, Zechariah gets a lot of traction as what God speaks to his people through Zechariah also speaks very loudly to us because of how he is being used uh, by the Holy Spirit to, 
Now help us see more of the impact of the new covenant um, you know, as, as we're looking at it. Uh, we want to talk about this morning uh, the, the promise that your king is coming to you in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he will speak peace to the nations. And in verse 12, that this uh, promise of the king coming means that we're not prisoners of despair in all the places where we feel stuck, or in places where you and I feel enslaved. Instead, we're prisoners of hope. But there's a deliverance promise. So let's, let's jump in in verse 9 with this promise that your king is coming to you. Jesus comes to us, and he's a different kind of king. Uh, and he has a different kind of kingdom. Uh, in our call to worship, we were using the, the words from Matthew 21. Let me uh, remind you of those. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples ahead of him saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, in this case, Zechariah, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Uh, this is unusual. Uh, kings ordinarily would not ride into town on a donkey, on a pack animal, on something that, uh, you know, your average ordinary person might have to help them, you know, run the garden, uh, run the farm, etc. This was a, a, a obviously a peaceful animal. Instead, if you wanted to impress your city, if you wanted to impress your people as their king, you would want to find the biggest, strongest, fastest horse, war horse that you can find, and that would be a symbol of power and strength. Here's here's a more contemporary idiom. Let me put it to you this way: Prom is coming, right? When's prom? What, uh, next month or something for a lot of the schools here locally. And if you remember prom, let me ask you, which guys especially, which vehicle would you rather show up to your prom date's house in? Would you rather be driving a 1978 AMC gremlin rusted out you know, the, the works, hubcaps missing, or a 2018 cherry red Tesla Model X. You got to think about that, right? I mean, I don't, you know, sort of a nostalgic appeal to the gremlin. There is the Tesla. Why is Jesus on a donkey? What kind of king is this? Shows up in a donkey. Come on. Where's the Tesla? Where's the symbol of power? Where's the symbol of strength? Where's the symbol of a new kingdom coming? Jesus is, uh, you know, just over and over and over again, if, as you encounter Jesus in the Gospels, people are trying to figure him out. And he doesn't play by the conventional rules. He's got a different script. If you're new to the church, if you're new to the, the Bible, take some time. This is a great week, by the way, just because it's Holy Week. Um, go into 
Matthew or Mark or Luke and read about Jesus and pay attention to the, the impressions that people have of him. They're all trying to figure out the same answer to the same question, who is this? Who is this who's riding a donkey into Jerusalem? Now, um, you know, in our contemporary uh, understanding, when we think of donkeys, we don't think of anything really um, more, <laughs> more impressive than maybe Eeyore, uh, kind of glum, you know, just uh, something that's not, uh, obviously not too impressive. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia, in the, the last battle, he picked a donkey to be uh, sort of like the, the, the guy who's riding shotgun to the antagonist. Uh, the donkey's name was Puzzle. Think of Don Quixote, right? Um, and Sancho Panza was riding a donkey. And, you know, just there's nothing powerful about a donkey. And yet, this isn't unprecedented, actually. Jesus, uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, in that ancient uh, Jewish culture, there, there was a connection that he was making between what he was doing, riding a donkey, and what previously Abraham had done, what Moses had done, what David and Solomon, um, who on occasion would mount a donkey as a statement, as a symbol, a statement of peace and a symbol of, of peace. Uh, I like how the Dictionary of Biblical Imagery puts it, a man on a donkey is not looking for war. So this is a message that Jesus is sending very clearly. It's consistent, right, with the prophecy that's being fulfilled here out of Zechariah. Look at verse 10, and you can see that, that Zechariah is promising that when the king comes, your king is coming to you, when he comes, he's going to get rid of some things. He's going to get rid of the, the war bow. He's going to get rid of the war horse, right? Uh, he's going to cut off the arrows and get rid of all of the, the instruments for war because this is going to be an inauguration of a kingdom of peace. So people are trying to figure out Jesus. They're expecting him to come in and fight the Romans and, uh, and, and establish a new kingdom. And instead, Jesus is bringing something different, something that they didn't quite expect because his kingdom is different. Um, in verse 9, Zechariah has uh, alluded to something that we looked at last month back in chapter 2 of Zechariah. He calls God's people the daughter of Zion. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Um, that's a, an expression that he's used before. Uh, back in chapter 2, he says, Up, escape to Zion. And he's speaking, uh, in this case, to all of those who've been exiled into places in, under Babylon's captivity. Uh, escape, come back to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. See the contrast? You who dwell with the daughter of Babylon, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. So that was back in chapter 2. Here you've got chapter 9, again, a promise to the daughter of Zion that your king is coming to you. So Zechariah has been describing all along two separate kingdoms, the kingdom of this world, in this case, uh, the, the powerful uh, uh, kingdom of the world was Babylon, and God's kingdom, the kingdom of God, is represented by the daughter of, of Zion. Um, one, of, uh, one of the pastors and uh, ministers who's 
uh, deeply shaped my understanding of what it means to be a disciple is Tim Keller. Uh, he recently retired from his ministry in New York City. He's written a lot of books, but uh, one sermon that I remember of his listening to, it was on a, on a cassette tape. Anybody remember what those are? Uh, back, back when I had a cassette player in my, in my, in my car, my 78 Gremlin. Uh, you know, one of his sermons that I used to listen to was called The Upside Down Kingdom. And in that sermon, uh, Tim Keller's using Jesus' sermon out of Luke, uh, the Sermon on the Plain, lots of overlap with Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and, and Tim Keller's using the contrasts that Jesus employs in the Sermon on the Plain to, to describe what Keller is saying is this upside-down kingdom of God. It's, it just turns everything that the world values on its head. It turns the kingdom of this world the kingdom of Babylon on its head to show us what the values and the principles and the priorities are in the kingdom of God. And so just to show you a a little taste of uh, the sermon on the the plain, uh, in Luke 6, Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor. Right right off the start, you go, huh? How, How in the world are the poor blessed? For yours... You who are poor is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven for so their fathers did to the prophets. So Jesus is describing the kingdom of God as a place where even if you're poor, even if you're hungry, even if people hate you, even if they despise you, they spit on you or whatever, if you have a relationship with God, and if he knows you by name, and if he loves you, you can still find joy in the midst of your tears. You can still experience fullness in the midst of your hunger. You can still have the assurance and the security of acceptance even when those who are closest to you are rejecting you. So those in the kingdom of God can can experience this, this bizarre duality of weeping and rejoicing and being empty and full. All of these can happen simultaneously in the kingdom of God because you are not just a citizen, an inhabitant of this world, but you are simultaneously a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes on to contrast those who, you know, in the earthly sense are without with, uh, to those who have all kinds of means, like Jesus saying, woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is very uh, disruptive language. We don't like hearing Jesus pronounce woe and judgment. We want gentle Nice Jesus, not the one who comes with fire in his belly. But nonetheless, Jesus is speaking truth to those who are using the world's means and the world's strategies to get on top. 
Jesus isn't saying, look, it's a bad thing, it's a sinful thing to have money. He's not saying it's a bad thing, it's a sinful thing to have food in your belly. He's not saying it's a bad thing or a sinful thing when people like you or when you laugh. What he is saying is that it is a bad sinful thing when you are full and rich and, hung, uh, and, and laughing and, and well-received because of what you've done to receive those things by manipulating and, uh, and putting others, you know, getting those things at the expense of others. How do we know that? Well, for instance, when Jesus says, woe to you who laugh now, that's a, that's a particular kind of laughing. It's the laughing of, that's, that's the scornful laughing. It's the, it's the joy of the, the victor's party after the other guy is defeated. It's laughter at the expense of somebody else and it's fullness at the expense of somebody else's emptiness. Uh, and it's a good reputation at the expense of somebody else's reputation. That's the way the world operates. And Jesus says, woe to that. Because he's bringing in a better kingdom. Sums it up in verse 27 out of Luke 6. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And if you've lost sight of how radical those words are, then you've just kind of gotten numb to the noise. You've lost the tune. Uh, Jesus is describing something completely upside down from this world. Michael Wilcox puts it this way, in the life of God's people, it will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values in the kingdom of God. The people of God will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks desirable. Jesus was a different kind of king, and he had a different kind of kingdom. His kingdom was upside down from this world. His kingdom was a place where you find your life by losing it. His kingdom was a place where the kings are the custodians. His kingdom is a place where The winner's circle is populated by the world's losers. That's the kingdom of God. And Jesus comes to bring that that kind of kingdom. Uh, In verse 10 in Zechariah 9, uh, we hear about what that king's agenda is. He's coming to speak peace uh, to the nations. He says, I'm going to cut off the chariot, the war horse, the battle bow, And he shall speak peace to the nations, and his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river, that's uh, the Euphrates, you know, kind of in the west, uh, to the ends of the earth. Like every known tribe and language and civilization and nation, they are all going to come under the authority of this king. And he is demanding peace from them. Uh, And he's bringing his kingdom to bear. Now, um, Let me read from Luke and in his account of the triumphal entry. Uh, It says, As Jesus was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They understood that this prophecy and all the prophets and everything that had been spoken about the Messiah to come, they understood that when He comes, He will bring peace. 
And that's why they're you know, celebrating the peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And this is the very next thing that Luke records for Jesus, what he does next. And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Something is horribly wrong in Jerusalem. This should be the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry. It should be the time when, yes, He's embraced by the city and they're shouting, glory to God, peace in heaven, Hosanna in the highest. And, and, and yet, Jesus, on receiving that praise, is weeping over these people acknowledging and realizing they don't have a clue what his terms of peace are about. Something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. And what's happened is that Jerusalem, as Jesus understands their hearts, even though he's hearing their words, he knows what's within us, and he sees a city that wants peace on its terms rather than on his terms. A city and a people and individuals that want peace on their terms rather than his terms. They want the kingdom of self at the end of the day. Uh, They want a kingdom where at the end of the day, you can say to those around you, you can say to everybody uh, around, you can say to this world, I want the world to bow to me, right? I want to be king or I want to be queen. I want to call the shots. I want to... I want to demand others to surrender to me and to my agenda. And I want you to change, not not me. I want you to conform to what I want you to do. And, and, And a way that you can sort of think through this is, in our own lives, do we ride into relationships and into situations riding a donkey? Or do you ride a war horse? Are you seeking to conquer? Is your agenda to win? Is that how you look at life? Or is your agenda to live at peace? To live out the gospel? To be an instrument of God's peace as it, as it comes? So, you know, James puts it this way, it, it, it's going to step on our toes and it's going to hurt a little bit. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, right? Like, you ever, does anybody here ever have a quarrel or a fight? Come on, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? We're riding war horses when we need to be riding donkeys. You desire what you do not have, and so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you, and you quarrel. You and I are basically just Jerusalem on a small scale, on an individual scale, right? Each of our lives is a parable for Jerusalem. Your life is like a city, an interconnected uh, series of comings and goings. You know, all of your activity, 
all of your industry, all of your employment, all of your politics, all of your recreation, all of your education, everything else that makes your life and my life like, you know, remember those Richard Scarry busy town books with Wormy and the pig who's the police officer? You know, like, we're just, that's all we're doing. We're just doing life, right? But our life is a city, and there's lots of busyness going on, and everything's happening. And when Jesus comes to the gate of our lives, when he comes to our city, you and I have a choice. Are we going to receive Jesus, or are we going to reject him? Now, I know 98% of your faces in here. And I know that nobody here is going to say, oh, well, you know, um, I don't I want to reject Jesus. No, I would certainly never reject Jesus. You know, boy, and those terrible people out there that reject Jesus, shame on them. Good for me, though. Well, let me, let me push this point a little bit. Uh, you and I may not reject him outright. I don't know, maybe you do. Um, and you've got to decide at the end of the day, who is Jesus? But if you have received him, if you've welcomed him, through the gates and through your walls and into your life, then, you know, how much are we actually surrendering to him? Is it an unconditional surrender to Jesus or do we try to negotiate with him? Are we trying to sort of determine some boundaries for what places within the, the, the city of my existence, where is Jesus allowed to reign and where is, what's off limits? Like, for instance, Jesus, all right, here's the chapel in my city. Here's, here's the spiritual place in my heart. And I want you to rule there because that's where you belong. That's great. You, you, can, you can be Lord over the spiritual stuff in my life. And, all right, um, maybe, you know, let's have you over here. You can, uh, I'll pray for your blessings, you know, and, and my work and so on. But, but really, I don't want you to come to my office. Don't come to work because then, then you'll see the way that I treat my fellow employees or the people that work for me or the way that I talk about my boss behind his or her back. And I don't want you to overhear any of that. I don't want you to see all of my competitiveness. Uh, oh, and please don't come, uh, maybe you're younger, don't come to my school. Jesus, you can be, you know, on the throne in the church or in the chapel in my city, but don't come to my school because then you'll hear our lunch conversation. Um, you'll see how just wrapped around the axle I am over my grades and instead of trusting you and You'll know what I do on the weekends, and we don't, want to, we don't want Jesus to meddle with that, right? Does this make sense? How we're, we're sort of trying to compartmentalize Jesus, tell him where he can go in the city of our lives, where he can't go. Whatever you do, Jesus, don't come to my house. Don't come to where I live. Because then you'll see how I treat my roommate. Then you'll see how I treat my spouse. And you'll see how I treat my kids or my parents. You'll see what I watch on TV or what I look at on the computer, what I shop for, what's in my refrigerator, how much I drink, you know, what I'm doing with my free time, all that stuff. Are you welcoming Jesus into that or is, is that off limits? There's no, there's no, there's no conditional surrender as a disciple. Either Jesus has absolute, complete authority and control of our, the city of our lives or, or, or we're shutting them out. And growing as a disciple means I'm starting to become more and more aware of the places where, okay, 
I need Jesus to come into this part of my life. I need Jesus to come into this room, this place in the, in the city of my life. You know, so instead, <laughs> instead of uh, Richard Loveless puts it this way uh, in his book, Renewal as a Way of Life, instead of ordering careers, families, businesses, and governments around God's purposes, we have at best tried to talk about Jesus to others, you know, we do our evangelism, we want to share Jesus with people while investing our main energy in pursuing the same things as the world, survival, security, and wealth. The church is seen as an enclave of spirituality apart from the struggle for worldly success. It is a restricted sphere in which God is permitted to rule, but outside, we run things. This is true for every one of us in this room. Every one of us. Jesus says he demands peace on his terms, not not our terms. And this is really the, the core of the kingdom of God. It's the kingdom of Christ. And the difference between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God is the kingdom of self says, bow to me. I want you to change. I want you to surrender to my agenda. And then the kingdom of God says, bow to him. Bow to Jesus. We all need to change. And we all need to surrender to him. Jesus tells us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. So, you know, in this case, Jesus is riding into our lives. He's demanding our peaceful surrender. And that's going to change everything. Uh, the, you've heard the sinner's prayer, you know, the, the prayer that they lead you to pray at the Billy Graham Crusades or the evangelistic events or the tracks or whatever. There's always the sinner's prayer. You know, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I need you to forgive my sins. You died on the cross for, my, for me. Thank you. Uh, and, and so on. But, you know, the real sinner's prayer is the one that we pray here every Sunday and that you probably pray at home more often than that. And it goes like this, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. Your Lord, I'm not, and I bow to you, I surrender to you. Loveless um, contrasts it this way. Instead of this place where we're sort of adopting a little bit of the kingdom of God, a little bit of the, of the kingdom of man, I really want my, my kingdom. He says that the, the kingdom of God, uh, when we are wanting Jesus to own everything, it looks and sounds like this. Our every goal and action should anticipate this God-centered world, so that everything we are and do should point to his coming realm and model it before the rest of the world. Christians should build straight houses in the midst of a world where crooked people are building crooked homes, and they should run straight businesses and vote for straight government in a world where these structures are misshapen by human sin. Their lives should appear to the world as centers of divine righteousness, peace, and joy. That's your life, right? A center of righteousness, peace, and joy. Of course, that's my life. How how can we get more of that? How can we have more of the fruit of the Spirit? Like the guys are going through this on Wednesday mornings, the fruit of the Spirit. How can I have more love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and you know, self, uh, gentleness and self-control. The good news here is that those things, those fruits growing in my heart and in your heart, having a life that shows more and more of, a, of the, the, the lordship of Jesus over us, that doesn't happen because, or those things aren't inhibited from growing in us because of our surroundings. 
None of us are in circumstances that inhibit the growth, that prohibit the growth of love and joy and peace. Do you know that? Some of those joyful, loving, kind Christians are living in persecuted countries right now. Some of them are in concent- places that make concentration camps look like summer camps. And they're full of love. And they're full of joy. And they're full of peace. So on the one hand, that's really good news, right? That, okay, good. My circumstances don't prohibit you know, my, my experience of more of Christ's love and more of his peace and so on. But what, what's going on, the reason why we don't have more of that is, is not because of our surroundings, but because of our lack of surrender. Because it goes like this. I want, you know, this promotion or whatever, and I'm not getting my boss's attention, and I'm getting overlooked and bypassed or whatever, and so that just makes me mad and angry, and I'm just bitter all the time. Instead of what does it mean to just actually trust that your father has a plan for you, and he's either going to work out the circumstances so that you do get the promotion you deserve, or can we just talk about the by and by? When justice is going to come and the world will feel this incredible exhale, this sigh of relief and satisfaction that finally everything is put to right. And this is what happens when we start going, all right, Jesus, you really are a king I can trust. I really can have joy in the midst of suffering. I really can be blessed even when I'm poor. I really can be happy even when I'm weeping because Jesus is in control. So in the kingdom of God, we're not demanding that everybody else change. I'm raising the white flag and I'm saying, Jesus, change me. Change me. Welcoming Jesus into every aspect of my life. I want to get off of my war horse. I want to stop entering into situations and relationships with this agenda to win and instead start coming in to love and to serve, to bring peace, to stop playing the king or the queen. I want Jesus to come in, and I want him to change me. God opposes the proud, and he tells us that if we aren't going to receive him, uh, how in the world can anyone expect him to receive them when on that day, the day, capital D day, when we come knocking on his gate? The good news is that Jesus came and he gave himself in that final sacrifice. Look at verses 10 and, or 11 and 12 as we talk about what it means to be prisoners of hope. Zechariah says that because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today, I declare that I will restore to you double. Um, this language of a covenant uh, is carried all throughout the Bible. If you remember some of the stuff we were talking about in this little sign of the covenant series we just wrapped up, that from the very first sin where our, our, our first parents even turned their backs on the rightful king, and he said, no, we want our own kingdom. Jesus came in and promised to bless them. And God keeps blessing and expanding the, the, the understanding of what his covenant is about until finally Jesus arrives. Hebrews 13 says, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal 
covenant. Jesus was delivered up according to the foreknowledge of God, and we crucified him. And when he died on that cross, what he was doing is he was serving us and laying down his life for us so that we could experience peace with God. He was crucified so that we could be covered by his blood and have our sin and shame removed, so that we could be restored, justified, made not guilty before God, made sons and daughters. And everybody who has faith in Jesus and receives that forgiveness and that love then enters into a new relationship with Jesus. And when we start asking him, take over every room in my house, take over every place in my city and start being your, the rightful Lord and King. This is the eternal covenant. And this is pointing us to a time Jesus you know, removed our sins on the cross, and that was a foreshadowing of the day when he's going to return, not on a donkey, by the way, but truly on a, a horse to conquer, when sin will be absolutely eradicated. And this is the difference between those who are prisoners of despair, continuing to exist in a situation that gives them no hope, versus people who experience bondage in various forms, but who nonetheless have hope because of the promise that Jesus is coming. Verses 11 and 12, we're told that God's going to set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return, O prisoners of hope, for I declare that I will restore to you double. It's this uh, picture that we're reminded of in Job. Job's fortunes were restored double. It's this picture of how heaven's blessings are going to be twice as great as Eden's, uh, and that's part of the the expansive nature of the covenant of grace. So what's the difference fundamentally between a prisoner of despair and a prisoner of hope? It's how you view your waterless pit. I don't know anybody in here who isn't in some or more waterless pit, what feels like a waterless pit, right? I mean, it's just where the brokenness and the crookedness of this world crashes into the promise of a new world. And we, we meet life head on. We acknowledge, all right, this is messed up. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But this is not the way it will stay. So what's your waterless pit? Where do you feel like a prisoner, stuck, trapped, even in bondage? Is it your job? Well, take heart. If your job feels like a waterless pit, guess what? Your king is coming. Behold, he is coming. I love how, you know, the, the one way to think about it is uh, the expiration date. There's an expiration date on your sadness. There's an expiration date on death and pain. There's an expiration date on suffering and, uh, and illness. There's an expiration date on violence and isolation. There's an expiration date on those things. So that your job doesn't have to feel like a waterless pit. Your, well, let's talk about marriage. Does your marriage feel like a waterless pit? Well, guess what? You do not have to be a prisoner of despair. You can have hope. Behold, your king is coming, and he will bless every act of love, every act of service, every effort to bring peace to that, that you can bring to that relationship. Does your school feel like a waterless pit? Behold, your king is coming. You do not have to despair. Your life, your retirement, your, your illness, your addictions just keep sucking you in. If you feel like you cannot get the edge, you can't turn the corner, guess what? Your king is coming. 
hang in there. Those things will expire. There's an expiration date on them. God promises to restore us and to double that. And in, um, later on here in this passage, this is the promise I'm going to leave you with. On that day, the Lord their God shall save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on His land. For how great is His goodness. How great His beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new, and new wine the young women. That's His promise to you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for loving us. For Jesus, the King who has come and is coming again to make everything that is crooked straight again. To restore to us double what was good to begin with, yet was made ruined by sin. Lord, You say You will have in store for us what no eye has seen and what no ear has even heard or mind conceived. So, Lord, let us have hope as we endure this world's brokenness, let us not despair. Let us not ride war horses, but let us bring peace as you brought peace. And let us live as men and women and children who bow to you, who love you because you have given your life for us and because you live again. In Jesus' name we pray.